0: Right, let's make a start, if we can, please. Thank you very much. Um, thank you very much for coming to this uh, first in four lecture series, four, four lectures. Um, happy New Year to you all. Hope you had a good Christmas and a good break. And um, as you can see, the title of this series is Old English in Context, and I'll explain a bit more about that uh, as we proceed through the talk. Um, usual things, the notes will be up on WebLearn. Um, turn off your phones. And also, I hope you're making use of the Old English course pack, because I assume most of you are here doing mods 3A, so keep an eye on that. We've just put up uh, Beowulf's fight with Grendel. So that's there if you're, if you're struggling to get to grips with that, with that text. OK, so I thought I'd start just with this nice little image. Um, hopefully you can all see that this is a close up of some Anglo-Saxon jewellery um, and it's what we call an interlaced pattern and the reason why I thought I'd just show this to begin with because it kind of sums up what the purpose of these lectures are to show you the uh, connections between various topics various texts and various subjects and clearly the Anglo-Saxon mind worked along this way because not only do we have patterns like this in their jewellery you could also suggest that there are patterns like that in their poetry there's an interlaced structure, things weave and indeed someone wrote uh, a very interesting article about interlaced structure in poetry But moreover, more importantly for you I suppose, is the examiner's report, when they looked back at your predecessors who set uh, the paper last year, um, they said that the very best of the papers were characterised by remarkable breadth and depth of analysis, so you have to concentrate on the text of course, focused on the text but recommended for study in a much wider body of material. So what I'm trying to impress on you is that if you just go in with a formalist mind and just look at the text, that's probably not good enough Um, because in Anglo-Saxon and Old English we have to look wider than that and that's really what I'm going to try and do today. So to make connections by placing the the, the texts you're studying and other texts in context and the four lectures that I'm going to give today is on historical texts but it's actually a bit more about history and and trying to make links uh, and so forth there. Next week I'm going to give you a bit of an idea about how Anglo-Saxon society was structured and that feeds directly into some of the ideas you get in in the poetry and in the prose. I'll then talk a bit about religion, science and magic in the third lecture because that's very important and it's it's one of the key principles I suppose in studying old old English literature. You've got to recognise that this was a clash of cultures this period. And then finally we'll have a look at Old English Manuscripts. So very much a new historicist approach to literature. There's there's absolutely no getting away from that. And I don't apologise for that because if you read any books on Old English Literature you'll find everyone does that as well. So in this particular lecture I'm going to have a look at some some of the historical sources. But I want to make some major points about applying history to literature. Um, and vice versa Uh, I'll take you again another trot through um, the history of Anglo-Saxon England because it's kind of appropriate but I'll try and point to texts which you might have read or might be reading which are appropriate and then show how this can affect your analysis of literature and Howell's quote there I think is again just reinforces what I've just said, all works on language and literature are historical if you pick up any book and start to read it they'll start talking about centuries they'll start talking about political movements and religious movements and you will have to do the same Okay, some important points to make this is a fairly obvious one, but when we're talking about the Anglo-Saxon period, it is a long period. It is 600 years. Okay, So people sweepingly make comments about the Anglo-Saxons, and I've seen this in numerous reviews of the Beowulf film. The Anglo-Saxons did this. Well, when are we talking about which Anglo-Saxons? 600 years, it's a long time. I'll quote you from... Uh, An unpublished lecture by um, Professor Tolkien, who obviously taught Anglo-Saxon here at Oxford, and these are in some of his unpublished notes. You can, if you like, speak of an Anglo-Saxon period in history before 1066, but it's not a very useful label. You might as well label all the jars in the top shelf of your store cupboard as preserve and all the rest jam. In actual fact, there was no such thing as a single uniform Anglo-Saxon period, just a time when all men wore funny trousers with cross straps and ate too much pork and drank too much beer, a time whose chief events were the burning of some cakes by Alfred and the wetting of Canute's feet. That is a legendary time that never happened or existed and is not nearly as interesting as the real thing. And if you want to put this into perspective, try and imagine at what point in history, if you were to go back in history, you feel completely disassociated from previous generations in that you wouldn't share things that they were concerned about, they found amusing, or so on. I mean, I don't know whether you... God, you probably think my generation is ancient generation, or whether you think it's the 50s or the 40s or whatever, um, or so, or where, where you go back. But try and imagine what um, similarities you would have with the people who lived under Henry IV because that's what we're saying, the people of the Norman Congress were exactly the same as the people who came over in the Anglo-Saxon migration period it's nonsense, a lot happened in that intervening period, for a start England as a country was formed, it wasn't there at the beginning it was there by the end the English language was formed in a sense and it became an identified purpose and I've just finished reading a book in which one historian who who actually you, you would value his opinion of and um, said that some of the most important developments in the administration of England, in technology to do with, obviously, farming, happened at the end of the Anglo-Saxon period. And it was without precedent until the Industrial Revolution. And you may say, well, that's nonsense. Of course, so much happened in the Renaissance and so on and, and so forth. But I think he's got a point. You know, the administrative process of the Anglo-Saxon set up that 10th, 11th century was still around up to about the early 1970s in some part so it's a bloody long time I'll stress that, I'll even write it in red it's a bloody, bloody long time and it's a long period that we're dealing with Okay. now, let's have a look at these I don't know if you can see that maybe I'll dim the lights so I usually forget which um, light I'm going to turn off Okay. completely nothing to do with the Anglo-Saxon period but let's just let's try that again Okay. you may have seen these clips, these may have been shown to you when you were doing GCSE history or something like that two famous clips from uh, a 1916 film which purport to show British soldiers attacking a German position in the Battle of the Somme. now what's wrong with those clips sorry yes there's a photographer in no man's land so what does that mean he can't have been there he's particularly stupid yes, in other words these are staged clips, they weren't real this is not actual footage from soldiers attacking on July the 1st or the 2nd or the 3rd in 1916 it's from that period and the cameraman did actually go out and film about 3 minutes of live footage of the Battle of the Somme that's all we have left this is staged and for exactly that reason if you were a cameraman standing there you're open to German machine gun bullets because they're firing right at you. So it's a pretty stupid thing to do and no cameraman worth his salt. Remember, these are cameras which you had to lug about, would have done that. The other clip, uh, clue which isn't in this clip is on that first one, when they go over the uh, very shallow trench, uh, one of them falls back and dies rather dramatically and then a couple of seconds later starts waving at the camera and smiling, hello, mom." So it's a kind of giveaway. But the important point is... As we know throughout the last century and this current century people distort historical truth to make a point and the Anglo-Saxons were no different. So when we approach what we think they're telling us about their history we have to take it with a pinch of salt. For example, this lovely entry from the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle in this year terrible portents appeared in Northumbria and miserably afflicted the inhabitants. These were exceptionally flashes of lightning and fiery dragons were seen flying in the air at the end of the 8th century did they actually believe what they were seeing when they saw maybe shooting stars war dragons? Or is this just a rhetorical device to create effect to say, look, there's all these portents, it's tying in with the Vikings attacking us, you know, it's a bad time, and this is just a throwaway remark about dragons. You could argue they did believe in dragons. Dragons in the Beowulf poem, quite happily it's in there. They listened to it, they liked it. The dragon is killed, the dragon is hid away, so they can then understand why you didn't find dragon carcasses around, but anyway so, historical documents are written for a reason, they're distorted as well, and historical fact is open to discussion, and what their perception of fact is perhaps very, very different from ours, and we'll come on to this when we talk about religion, because it's very easy to dismiss some of their beliefs just offhand, and say well they can't possibly believe that, but they believe you, me they did believe it, and they believed it as factual as much as they knew how far it was to the next village right, finally a bit more, something which is quite important for us as as literary people you may have seen this before Christmas the Cranford uh, serialisation, which I thought was rather good actually, I enjoyed it Um, apart from the fact that she was as she always is Uh, but there you go, now when we reapproach that text, if you're doing Victorian literature or whatever, if you approach that text, you will, of course, come with baggage of information about Gaskell. You will know all about it. You will know our life history. You will know that Cranford is, in fact, Nutsford in Cheshire. If anyone knows or comes from that area, you know it's rather ironic because Nutsford isn't the nicest of places at the moment. But anyway, you will know all this information about that text. You will know what the impact of the railways coming was on the English landscape and so on. You've got baggage of information which you apply to the text. You can't disassociate it. The problem is we don't have that information in the old English period. We know a lot about the history, but then we have to somehow try and place the text in that historical context with very little information to go on. If you think of modern literary studies, these are all the types of things they use. Some literary theorists will only use one or two of them. Um, But they will use a lot. Reception theory, for example, would want to know about the cultural context, the type of audience that's listening to the text or reading the text and so on. If we have the author, the date of the text, we can start applying new historicist approaches much better. But when we look at the old English period, most of the time we don't know when the text was written. We don't know the name of the author outside of a few things. We don't know anything about the author. We can guess at what the publication history was. Where do we place it in the 600 years of Anglo-Saxon history? Very, very difficult. And you may think, well, well, it's a nonsense subject. That's why so many people run away from it screaming. But I actually think this makes it an extremely interesting subject because it challenges the accepted wisdom of literary theorists. And we have to take on literary theory and say, well, no, what about if you've got an anonymous text which you don't know how to date and you're trying to sort of place that in an oral culture that developed? That's why they get all annoyed with us medievalists, but there you go. So in Old English, the things we are looking for is the date the text is set, the date the text was composed, the author of the text, and the date the text was written down. And really, if you think of Beowulf, we only know the first and the last. We know the action of Beowulf is happening in the early 6th century because there's a couple of asides about events which we can date from that period. We know it's written down in a manuscript called Cotton Vitellius A15 around the turn of the millennium. We argue forever about when it was composed or whether it's a hybrid of texts which were put together and we argue forever about who the author of the text was or were there several authors. So very interesting and very difficult to, to pin down. So, a few important points and the last one I think is also quite interesting. You may call this plagiarism, they would call it reusing resources. If you look at the first extract on your handout, you will see the description of Britain by Bede, as he opens his ecclesiastical history. Britain is an island formerly called Alhambra, is situated between the north and west facing, though at considerable distance the coast of Germany, France and Spain, which form the greatest part of Europe. It extends 800 miles in length towards the north, and 200 miles in breadth where there are several promontories, and so on. Okay, so he's trying to describe Britain as he starts to give it its history. And then if you look at the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, written about 160, 170 years later or started, the island of Britain is 800 miles long and 200 miles broad, and there in the island five nations, English, Welsh or British, Scottish, pictures, and in Latin, lifted directly from bead. So when the Anglo-Saxon Chronicler started to write the history of Britain, he pulled his bead off his shelf and copied out the first part, Unfortunately, Bede had copied someone else, so the mistakes are repeated all the way through. So, that's possibly not uncommon, as I'm sure you're repeating several mistakes from mistaken scholars as you go along as well. Right, I won't talk about these too much, but I often get asked, well, what books should we, should we have a look at? Um, there's lots of books there. All very good. Um, so you can find these on Webler, and I think I've tried to do links to them. Uh, I slipped in, but, you know, don't go and buy it, the book that I wrote with Elizabeth Solopova, because we try to condense Anglo-Saxon history into a few pages and material on Anglo-Saxon culture and then tie it into the text. At the end with. But you're prob- possibly beyond that stage now. But anyway, those are the books you should have to hand. Very, very good. If the, one, the one I really like from historical perspective is Eric Johns because it's written by a historian who's kind of got all grumpy as he retires and writes these really scathing comments about Anglo-Saxon historians ok so now for some history what historical texts, if I was to say to you well, what books would we consult from the period, not books that are written now but from the period which would give us information about the history, what would you come up with what would you suggest Doesn't have to be, book, sorry, book texts. Anglo Saxon Chronicle. The Anglo Saxon Chronicle, thank you. I was beginning to wonder there. Uh, yes, the Anglo Saxon Chronicle is kind of right, rather useful, because it, it gives you an entry for every year of the Anglo Saxon period. we talked about that a bit later on. So, yes, anything else? Yes? Laws. Okay, law codes, because successive kings issued law codes, and that will give you an indication of how society changed. Bede. Bede, excellent. Bede's ecclesiastical history gives us that early history of Anglo-Saxon England and particularly good on the 7th century you know, yeah. Libra the Libra Eliensis. okay so that's a later book about the book of Eli where, so we would use books like that which give us information about the history of mo- monasteries and churches and so on cool usually get one of these alright well these are the are ones you'll come across again and again and again um, and I've listed things like other things that you might annals, law codes, charters, wills, rits literary texts, literary texts Battle of Malden, kind of gives us a bit of an insight to what happens in the battle um, the Erosius, or does it um, there's the Erosius which gives us classical history earlier just before Anglo-Saxon but they were interested, but these are books which come up again and again or texts which you will hear reference to um, Tacitus, I'll talk about him in a second and um, there's Bede These are other books. You can see the dates, which may have been written from different perspectives, but they give us an insight into what was happening. We piece these all together, and even I would put in the Bayeux Tapestry because that is a historical document we would consult. And then, of course, you get the post-conquest writers, um, which give us kinds of information about all kinds of things. Now, when you get with these guys here, remember, um, you know, the victors write history. So you have to take some of the things they're saying with a pinch of salt, particularly about some of the Anglo-Saxon kings and practices. But anyway, these are a lot of books which you will see referenced. And they all provide us with glimpses or um, little insights into it. Does Does anyone know who Gildas is or was? Yes? I think he's a Russian monk. British monk. Yeah, he was, he was basically living in Britain and he gives you the perspective of what happened in terms of the invasion. So he's on the losing side. He's part of the indigenous British, okay? And he's writing that the De Exidio Britannia, the ruin of Britain. And he writes his text very much saying, look, our morals have gone to pieces, everything we've done is really, really bad and awful and that's why these horrible, savage Anglo-Saxons are coming and beating the hell out of us. And unless we mend our ways, we're going to lose, as he predicted accurately. So that's why it's being written in the 6th century. He's an interesting guy, Gildas, and we'll come back to him in a bit. But when you're trying to piece together the history of the Anglo-Saxon period, you bring in other topics. And as you progress, if you do progress in this, this field, you will start to engage with things like archaeology, the history of art, I mean I've already shown you a piece of jewellery, obviously we have to bring in information about language because that gives us a bit of clue about the way people moved, place names, very important because they show us about migration patterns and how things were settled, and comparative literature it's often viewed, just read this in isolation, but remember we have to put this against what was happening in Scandinavia, in Germany, in France and so on, so we try and get a comparative view Okay, just to bring in Tacitus, um, as you see, a Roman writer who writes about the Germans, Germania, this is before the migration period, and the reason this is quite interesting, Tacitus, is that he gives us a lot of stereotypes which we tend to apply to the Anglo-Saxons. Whether you want to apply them to the modern Germans is entirely up to you, or to yourselves, I'll I'll let you judge. All have fierce blue eyes, red hair, huge frames, fit only for a sudden exertion. I'm not entirely sure their line of battle is drawn up in a wedge like formation you often see that when people try to do films of and the Germanic wedge was a criticism levelled at um, Tolkien and Lewis and things like that about minor matters the chiefs deliberate about the more important the whole tribe even when the final decision rests with the people Democracy. The affair is always thoroughly discussed by the chiefs. They assemble, except in the case of southern emergency on certain fixed days. So this is this idea that the anglo saxons and German tribes had this vague idea of democracy in Parliament, sort of witans and people forming, and the Normans did away with all that. When they go into battle, it is a disgrace for the chief to be surpassed in valour, a disgrace for his followers not to equal the valour of the chief, and it is an infamy and a reproach for life to have survived the chief and return from the field so when you read those closing lines of the battle of Malden we're not going to leave him although he's dead we're going to stand and fight you can see how it might tie in with these notions of heroism first coming from Tacitus it's a duty among them to adopt the feuds as well as the friendships of a father or a kinship and to pass an entire day and night in drinking disgraces no one their quarrels as might be expected with intoxicated people are seldom fought out with mere abuse but commonly with wounds and bloodsheds. So that's very much like the modern-day English one would argue. Now, Tacitus is interesting, but again, he's writing this to try and, as a reflection, on what he saw was the decline in Roman civilization, and more importantly, he never went to Germania. He's making all this up or using other sources. So, all those points are out. But you'll see those quoted again and again and again so here we go, let's trot through the Anglo-Saxon period, and I'm sure hopefully you might know about these but anyway, so Roman Britain collapses in the early 5th century but actually there's a bit of a flux of films coming out about this, has anyone seen The Lost Legion, or The Last Legion oh, who's the guy who played, um, who was in Pride and Prejudice, the good looking guy yeah, yeah, this thing. Well, I wait, it doesn't do anything for me, but anyway, Colin Firth. Oh yeah, he's, um, he's this sort of kind of like last legionnaire and Rome gets sacked by the Germans and he grabs this sort of little last Caesar and they flee. Where are they going to flee? Let's flee to that outpost called Britain and um, oh and he's got a sword and let's shove it in a stone and it's trying to sort of build up the art it's a bit like that King Arthur one with Clive Owen but it's actually quite interesting in a sort of bizarre funny way anyway so the Roman collapse, Roman collapse the uh, indigenous people are left to defend themselves against these Picts these scoti and the Saxons that's why we have Saxon shore forts they possibly bring in a load of mercenaries from Saxony say here fight for us, we'll pay you, and they get here and think, well, oh, this is rather nice, it's lot better than where we were living. Um, a lot drier, well, quite ironic at the moment. But anyway, um, let's take it for ourselves, and then you get this sort of of Saxonium in the mid-fifth century. And the important thing to say is it's not really invasion, this is not D-Day, this is a migration of people, economic migrants, of course. I just keep saying that to annoy the Daily Mail, but anyway. Mm-hmm. Now the British who were sitting there gradually being pushed west didn't see that so that's why you would refer and look at Gildas who has some interesting things to say but they came over and they brought their culture and of course their language with them. And, and what I'm putting at the bottom here are texts if you were thinking this period you might want to consult So Bede, of course very good at that period, Anglo-Saxon Chronicle kind of copies those texts a bit more. But Beowulf and Beowulf is dealing with the sort of early migrationary period events in Scandinavia but it's trying to capture possibly from much later the ideals and values Okay, what did they bring with them well I'm going to come up to this a bit later but they brought of course all their stories and all their myths a poem which you may know or may not but it's a lovely poem Deor and um, I think I mentioned it last term Wayland tasted misery among snakes the stout-hearted hero endured troubles had sorrow and longing as his companions cruelty cold as winter he often found woe once Neithad laid restraints on him subtle singing bonds on the better man that went by so can this now apart from the sort of consolation in the last line of each stanza clearly the audience knew who Wayland was and Neithad was and what all this was about binding and so, on. so they're bringing their stories over and you can see that there is, I think I may have shown this—but that there is a lovely casket in the British Museum, and there's some runes. okay, this is an Anglo-Saxon casket, which they, they have a little picture there of Weyland with his little hammer, and people trying to get him to do things. So we bring their culture with us, and that survives, and we'll pick that up when we talk about religion. Okay, so from tribes to kingdoms, if we accept they were mainly a tribal nations, a series of nations before they came over and when they came over they started to conquer each other, merge through marriages and form what you might want to call kingdoms, and the early period, well over 30 kingdoms so this might be interesting if you kind of try and relate it to where you live, but think of an east west push, okay Start moving into Wiltshire, Gloucestershire, Lincolnshire, North East Yorkshire at that time, okay? So early sixth century, the time of Beowulf. Five nine seven Saint Augustine arrived. Remember, They are coming over pagan, but the the start of the conversion for, to Roman Christianity begins then. Which remember the Irish were doing a fairly sterling job in the north of the country, but as they always say we never get any credit for anything, so now, the British resisted in true Dunkirk fashion and you will often hear mention to Mons Badonicus or the Battle of Mount Baden. We don't know where this was, but obviously the British stood up and uh, drew a line in the sand um, and the Anglo-Saxons were defeated at some point and often people say that is the battle led by this guy called Arthur. But our information and knowledge and historical Um, proof of Arthur's existence is scant to say the least so whenever you come across a nutter who thinks they are King Arthur which there are a few or he's buried under Glastonbury Tor and all that you are the people because you are the experts who will turn out so there's absolutely no evidence for that whatsoever, go away climb a tree Okay. Okay, they're moving into Staffordshire so they're heading towards uh, Nutsford um, and um, Stoke God bless them. Um, I was brought I, I lived in so free. So anyway, I'm allowed to say that. So as this forms, society begins to structure, war bands become tribes <coughs> gradually into kingdoms, as I've said. And by the early twelfth uh, early seventh century we have twelve kingdoms, which is gradually reduced to what you would commonly hear the heptarchy, the main seven kingdoms of Anglo-Saxon England. And really they start merging. And the, the, the merging is not, does not go without pain, so we're still seeing the problems of merging into Northumbria at the Norman Conquest into these four kingdoms East Anglia, Mercia, Wessex, and Northumbria. So, again, Beowulf, Bede's Ecclesiastical History, Anglo Saxon Chronicle. Now, I'm not going to talk too much about it, I might show you a bit. Sutton Hoo is around from the early 7th century, okay? You will hear reference to it, so it gives us a fantastic glimpse into the treasure and the wealth that they could have accumulated even at that early time. And the objects tie in amazingly to objects which are mentioned in Beowulf. Now you can carry on reading history books if you want. Or of course there's TV. You can learn so much from TV. Not. Um, And I would love to show you Noggin the Nog um, or Clopper Castle, but we've moved into Hillary terms so I can't. Um, So what I'm going to show you, just out of sheer laugh, because we're halfway through the lecture, is a um, a bit of something called, the. ignore what that purple thing is doing, something I found called the Lost Centuries. Now I thought I'd show this, because when I found it, I thought it was a spoof. I thought it was one of these comedy shows, let's make a history programme in the style of the 60s, but it isn't, it's genuine. Um, And it shows you just how you can try and cover great periods of history with clearly about ten tenpence um, in your budget. And the dialogue is something to behold. Very good. OK, so go away and find it, but I just thought, it's fun. OK, Anglo-Saxon on the brink. Things go downhill, of course, the Anglo-Saxon period. Now, think again, kingdoms, mercy and dominance... Um, in the seventh century, this is where you get reference to the offer, offer of offers dike, okay. And then, of course, the Vikings come. They lead to considerable destruction. And I throw a question out to you: Does destruction, because they were witnessing so much destruction, is that why they had kind a of fixation on this idea of transience, that worldly goods pass? So, when you're talking about your energies, you might say, well, they were surrounded by destruction. They'd seen the Roman Empire fall. So, again, you might want to bring in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. Also have a look at Anglo-Latin writers, people from the period who were writing in Latin, uh, and the old English Elegies. So, the Viking invasions were uh, considerable. It's just consider the arrow, so it wasn't just England that got it, everywhere got it, and that doesn't show you Eastern Europe, of course. And as you probably know towards the 9th century everything bar Wessex is surviving and Wessex only survives because of King Alfred who leads the fight back against the Vikings who was Alfred? it's a stupid question because we have an entire book telling us who Alfred was Asa's life of Alfred but I thought I'd bring this in that's who Alfred was and it's, it's kind of interesting it's his genealogy. I bet you couldn't do this you'd probably say who your mum and dad were and then uh, your grandfather and grandmother and that's about it well, this, this puts to shame any genealogist and local historian. King Alfred was the son of Ethelwulf. That's fine. He was the son of Egbert. who was the son of Edmund. He was the son of Alfred And on and on and on it goes. Look, he, he traces his line back to many, many people. And then it starts getting interesting who was the son of Woden, as in the god. He was the son of Frithelwulf. He was the son of Frederick. who was the son of Frithelwulf. Who, who was the son of Finn, of Godwulf. who was the son of Yeat. Is that one of the Yeats that? find a way into Beowulf, yeah, that was the son of Tathwa, the son of Beowulf, possibly this bare myth that Beowulf is, Sheldh, he's there, Heremud, he appears, and then you can go back, he was the son of Noah, who was the son of Lamech, who was the son of Methuselam, Enos, who was the son of Seth, who was the son of Adam. And this was important, obviously, to Alfred, and I think it's a general point, it was important to the Anglo-Saxons, they were constantly trying to find their place in history, where did they fit And genealogies you will see time and time again, it is very, very important to people, you will often see people introducing the poetry so-and-so, son of so-and-so, because they want to establish their credentials. Thank you. Okay. now Alfred, of course, writes a lot of texts, and um, one of them which you, you might look at is his preface to the pastoral care. In this, he takes a snapshot of what's happening in England when he takes to the throne Um, and as you can see this I'll put the old English up so utterly it was falling away in the English people that very few were on this side of the Humber who their divine services might know understand in English or even one letter from Latin to English translate now historical document it gives us a picture of what a king thinks was happening in his kingdom and what he had to remedy From your purposes you would be making comments like that but you would also be making comments on the language. And if this doesn't mean much to you, ask your tutor. Anyway, that's about the language that's used in the Old English. You would possibly comment on the style in the Old English. But you would bring all this in with your knowledge of history. So he mentions Anglecunna, an English. This is important because he's trying to establish an idea of a nation at a time when it was very much in doubt. And if it fits in... Kind of, with leaf is lana, life is on loan, everything's transient. Everything went. He was picking up the ruin tradition. De Excidio, which of course Gildersburg. So, you know, a little text, which is important when you start placing in its historical context. Lots of things happen because of Alfred. English becomes the dominant language of the court and clergy, so that's why many, many documents are written in English from that period onward. Well, in terms of history, of course, he leads the reconquest of England. The Vikings are subsumed or pushed back. So by the time you get to his grandson, Athelstan, who wins the Battle of Brunenburg, 937, all of England, the Scots, possibly the Irish as well, have bowed down to Anglo-Saxon rule. So I'm really trotting through history quite quickly. In the mid-10th century, so we're talking about 50, 60 years after Alfred and there is a relative time of peace when Edgar the Peaceful reigns. And what's important about this is when there's peace, you have a chance to take stock. You have a chance to do something. And what we find here is a very important movement called the Benedictine Revival when the Benedictines, the monks, which was the only monastic order in England at the time, really established themselves and started promoting and building monasteries. And we see a massive flourishing of art and literature from that period. And this is where we would slot in writers like Alfridge and Wolstan. But it explains some interesting things. A couple of pictures there. So here I'm bringing in art from the Anglo-Saxon period. Okay. As you can see, a king, Wu, King Edgar, that is, looking up to Jesus. Angels supporting him, kind of egg-shaped type thing. Anyway, two people there. Similar image, four angels, Jesus there. Not quite the same person, but similar hands out here, a few people looking on. Okay, Similar images. Very, very similar images. That one was drawn in Winchester in the 10th century. This one was drawn in the Sinai Peninsula in the 5th century. Now, how did that influence that? Well... In the middle part, if you think of chronologically and almost geographically, we have the Carolingian Empire. And the Carolingians model their art and their ideas on Byzantine art, this area here. When the Benedictines turn to start trying to reform learning and launch it again, they look to the great empire of the recent past, which was the Carolingians. So they start picking up Carolingian practices in all kinds of things, building architecture, literature, teaching and art. So although we call this Winchester school art it's influenced by the Carolingians centuries before and goes way back to Byzantine art. So, you remember that image at the beginning links, things linking? Nothing is in isolation. Okay, it does all go bad as we know. I'm sure you're sick of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. Here in this year someone becomes consecrated and then something gets completely destroyed. Um, pretty much that is the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle from this time there it is in old English again if you were asked to comment on this you would say well it's interesting that they're picking out um, what they're picking out that you know, it's, it's as important that a bishop is consecrated as it's important that an entire town and its population is destroyed well anyway there you are how they use the language style etc etc um And the only reason, this only sticks in my mind, this one, because um, of Tenetland, I was teaching it once to some adult learners, which is Thanet, and I said, oh, and that's, uh, as it says, it says um, Thanet was ravaged, and one of the people said, that's an interesting coincidence, because my mother was ravaged in Thanet. And um, (laughs) that's at that point where the class goes silent, and you go, right, okay, let's move on. Uh, Anyway, so... The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. There is uh, some reading, some text for you if you have to go and look at it. But it's important to note that it does cover, try to cover, the year 1 AD and goes way into the mid-12th century. um, But it draws on earlier sources, as I said. And although it's a prose text, there's poems in there, Um, and they are the poems listed at the bottom. They're not very good poems, but they are poems. All right, but it does go downhill. This is kind of um, linked to your second extract. This is a sermon by Wolfstand written in the early 11th century. It's a very famous one called The Sermon of the Wolf to the English. And in this, he is saying, Look, the world's in, the, the Vikings are coming again, things are going pear shaped, what are we going to do? Um, and this is why, because things are, uh, our morals have collapsed and so on and so forth. And I've put some old English there, so if you want to try downloading this and having a translation, then do. But if you look at the second extract in um, your handout, this is what Wolfstand's writing. 1014, 10, 1016, 10, he changes the text. But look, in God's name, let us do as necessary for us. Defend ourselves as best we may, lest we all perish together. There was a historian in the time of the Britons called Gildas. He wrote about their misdeeds. Now, how, now, by their sins, they angered God so very excessively that finally allowed the host of the English, i.e., us, to conquer their land, i.e. them, and to destroy the nobility of the Britons altogether. And as he said, that came about through robbery by the powerful. And it is true what I say. We know of worse deeds among the English than we have anywhere heard of among the Britons. So it kind of goes round again. The Anglo-Saxons, who were the conquerors in the 5th, 6th century, and the British were writing, oh, look, we're being destroyed because we're really naughty people. Wolfstein picks that up. When they're being destroyed at the end of the millennium, he's saying, we're worse than Gildas. And things are really going down. So, again, okay, how does it end? Well, we hear Æthelred the Unready. He, he is Unready means ill-advised, not he was caught short. Um, he has to face renewed Viking attacks. Um, Wolfstan, who is the advisor to Æthelred the Unready, writes um, quite a bit of interesting insight into what's happened in that period. He's a, he's a good political animal because he survives and becomes Canute's advisor. Um, so there's the Sermon of the Wolf. Unfortunately, it does eventually hand over the uh, throne to the Scandinavians under King Canute, he of the wetted feet, as Tolkien called him, which is completely inaccurate. But it returns to the Anglo Saxons with Edward the Confessor, who reigns from 1042 to 1066. He's succeeded by Harold II. And you kind of know what's happening here. And standard image Harold getting one in the eye. If it is indeed Harold, or is that Harold? Or are they both Harold, anyway? But I thought I'd bring this in because, you know, even, you know that bit of the quote from the Anglo-Saxon about fiery dragons in the sky? Well, there's Haley's Comet, and there they all are going, Ooh, look at that. That's bad. Something bad's going to happen. And indeed, they were right, because they were conquered. So, Halley's Comet, as an omen of doom and despondency above Harold being crowned. So, even this form of literature is telling us interesting things and tying in with all kinds So we can look at history that way or we can look at history backwards which is kind of fun in a way because it just shows you there clearly is a god and he's got a sick sense of humour. So we know they were defeated by the Norman conquest. Well why did the Normans come? Because William the Conqueror felt that Edward the Confessor had said yeah you can have the throne. Now Edward isn't just randomly picking people out of mainland Europe and going who shall I give my throne to? Why did he decide to give it to William. Because Edward when Canute was on the throne was exiled to Normandy so he basically was a Norman a Norman Quisling as he's been occasionally called Why would he have gone to Normandy? Because his mum was Norman Because his dad Ethelred the Unready married Emma of Normandy Why did Ethelred marry Emma of Normandy? Because the Vikings were invading England from Norman ports so he thought this would be a really good idea let's align myself with Normandy then they won't hand their ports over to them why was Ethelred up, up the Swanee? Because, first of all, the Vikings that attack in the end of the 10th century, early 11th century, are far better, much more macho, but well-prepared to really disciplined people than what happened 100 years earlier. And also because most of his noblemen vacillate, turn, coat at uh, key times, as you'll read in the Chronicle. Why did the noblemen turn coat? Because Edgar, in the peaceful time, thought, hey, let's give all the land to the monks because there's the Benedictine Revival. So all the nobles are going. Well, that's great. Our king's giving away less. Less side, with these Vikings—they're much better. They give us loads of stuff. And why were the Vikings much better? Because Alfred whipped their flabby asses in the end of the ninth century and sent them running, and built this series of defenses throughout England. So the Vikings, who decide to launch the renewed attacks in the twelfth, uh, uh, sorry, in the, in the next century, come much better prepared, much more disciplined. So the Norman Conquest is Alfred the Great's fault. If you work history backwards. By the way, the Vikings were still raiding England in the 13th century. Not many people know that. So, all told, I've gone in a lot of history and I've tried to tie it together, but it's important, okay? Because here's some things which you might be looking at now. I don't know. In, in preparation, you've possibly been looking at the elegies, the Wanderers, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Why are they Christian in sentiment? Well, they are. It ends with a very, very Christian message. You know, when were they written? Would it have been written? could have been written around the end of the 10th century. If read the Unready, you're looking around, things are destroyed. could be written much earlier, you're looking at the collapse of the Romans. could be written in the 8th century when the Vikings are coming. But when you have all this evidence in your head, or the rough dates you can start applying literature in its conquest. Why was there a flourishing of prose in the late West Saxon the end of the 9th century? Well, because of the Benedictine revival, which originated in Wessex, in Winchester. So then they start <coughs> taking their language, etc., forward. Um, sorry, late West Saxony in the 19th century, was Alfred the, the Benedictine, Prose the next one, in the 10th century. And when might, sorry, that's a classic question, one of the ideas, we try and date Beowulf, when might it have been well received? If you think of that massive sweep in history I've just given you, when would you really have wanted to sit down and listen to some really stirring tales about people from Scandinavia? Possibly not when they've just killed your arm, or they're about to burn your shed, or you've had to leg it from them. (coughs) Maybe? Maybe you might want to listen to something wondrous about Scandinavia when Canutes on the throne because he's a Scandinavian (coughs) king. Or maybe you listen to it before the Vikings come because it gives you that glimpse of where you came from and your ancestors. Or maybe someone's just having a laugh or trying to make some sort of... okay, they are kind of linked to the Vikings but we don't view them like that but look at the heroism in Beowulf. Christian ideas which we can explore. That's how you start to play this game. You have to start bringing these things in. And you, obviously, if you're writing an essay on Beowulf, in the exam, or if your tutor would start bringing in these ideas about dating, you would start bringing in Sutton Who, you would start bringing all kinds of things. History in a nutshell, da-da-da-da, there you are. They lose. Um, And there's my important points, which I made. It's a long time ago, and it was more importantly a long period. Historical fact is very much open to discussion, what they say. Um, They write for a purpose, pick up everything, there's always a purpose. Even in the poetry, there's a purpose behind what they're trying to say. Why? What is the message? Um, Our historical knowledge is limited, um, particularly about the text and the writers, etc. So, when we approach theory, and you are told you have to approach theory, well, you've got some questions to ask or theories because they assume basic knowledge in a lot of things and reusing text was not common. So, that's it. Next week, what was the centre of the universe? It's not Ellen Road. It should be, but anyway, there you are. Where do pubs come from and how much was a toe worth in Anglo-Saxon England? So hopefully I'll see you next week. Thank you.